we're going to be in the book of Ruth, and I know some of you are doing the math in your head, and you're thinking, he took seven weeks to go through Philemon. It's one chapter. Don't worry. I, I, right now, I'm thinking we're going to take about five weeks to go through the book of Ruth. Uh, the book of Ruth has two settings. So there is the historical setting. The book of Ruth is set in the time of Judges. So in the time of Judges, where we see that um, every man did what was right in his own eyes, the book of Ruth takes place in that setting. And yet, um, the book of Ruth also has what we might call a canonical setting. Uh, in your English Bibles, the book of Ruth comes between the book of Judges and the book of 1 Samuel. Um, but actually, in the Hebrew Bible, um, and there's a historical background for both of these, I think they're both, they're both helpful to think about it this way, the book of Ruth actually is almost always included with the wisdom literature, with Job and with Proverbs and with Ecclesiastes. And, uh, and what unites all of that wisdom literature, what in Hebrew is called the ketavim, the, the writings, is grappling with suffering. And I think the book of Ruth uh, contributes to what the Bible has to teach us about suffering, just like Proverbs and just like Job's and, uh, Job and Psalms. And, and so the book of Ruth, I think, is one of the ways that the Bible, uh, not the only way, but one of the ways the Bible addresses the problem of suffering. Specifically, the first two weeks we're going to see that in the book of Ruth. And so Ecclesiastes' answer to the problem of suffering is it doesn't matter, you're going to die. Proverbs answer to the problem of suffering is don't be a fool. Job's answer to the problem of suffering is, we might say, ask the right questions. And Ruth's, well, we'll see what Ruth's is. Let's look, and I'm just going to read the first five verses uh, for now, but we'll continue through verse 18 as we go. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, And the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Kilian died. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Let's pray. Father, we pray one more time that you would open up your word. Make us to hear it. Make us to understand it. Would you comfort us through it? Pray these things in the name of your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Why do we suffer? Why do we suffer? This is a question which I think we all ask. There's maybe a chance here that you are here this morning and you are going through something in your life and you are asking that question yourself. Why do we suffer? The humanist, the atheist, who's not, this person's not a Christian, uh, Bernard Lycan says this. He says, Many believe that a caring personal God has their welfare in mind, but the literary evidence provides little to support this view. Even if there is a God, his unscrutable purposes may be far beyond us. Or he may be playing with us, or he may be tormenting us. I would say that the universe has no purpose, and that we humans have to sort out what matters. Purpose and meaning are not properties of the universe in the way that mass and energy are. Rather, purpose and meaning are human creations, our glory and our tragedy. Uh, there, Mr. Lycan, who's not, obviously not a Christian, uh, says that, 
there is no purpose in suffering. There's nothing about suffering that carries an inherent purpose. Any purpose, any meaning, any comfort that comes in suffering is something you have to invest in suffering yourself. Now, I would just point out a handful of things about that. Um, One, that is the logical outcome of the atheistic position. If you don't believe in a God, then you have to believe there's no meaning in the universe. So at least he's being consistent. But I have, number two, I have sat at enough bedsides of, of, of people's deathbeds, and I have been in enough of what the counselor Diane Langberg calls the alarm places of life. And I, I have been and seen and tasted and felt and smelt enough of the darkness of this world to know that that is a crushing burden to put on the sufferer. To say that anything that happens in suffering, anything that is broken, anything, and any disaster that you come through, you, you, it's up to you to find purpose in that. That is a crushing weight. That is a crushing weight to put on the person who's suffering. And yet there is one thing that which, which we can look to at this and, and find and maybe take from it. It's that even for those who don't believe in God, there's something deep inside of us that when everything falls apart, when the bottom falls out from underneath us, when the, the ceiling caves in, that there's something in us that wants to find hope. There's something in us that when the the world is falling apart, we want to find meaning. We want to find purpose. We want to find comfort and consolation. And I think we want it from someone who's bigger than ourselves. And I think we're going to see this morning that Ruth finds just such a comfort. And we can see here that the book of Ruth, even the way that the narrative is written, um, compels us to ask these deep questions about suffering. If you look in the first two verses, it says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a famine comes on the land in the days of the judges. And a man of Bethlehem, in Hebrew it's Bethlehem, got to get the ch in there. A man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, and he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. And the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Now, as you're reading those two verses, it seems like the main character, the protagonist, the center of the story is who? It's going to be this guy named Elimelech, right? Seems like Elimelech is who this is about, that the book of Ruth is really oriented around him and, and what's going to happen to him. But then you get to verse 3. It says, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. She was left with her two sons. E- even the way the story is written is, is written to communicate the sense of abrupt transition and disruption and dissonance. And, 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 and there's this sense of, of, of that, the, that there's something uneven and uncharacteristic. And there's something uncertain about the way the narrative is even written that we think it's going to be about one thing. And it kind of fakes us out. And it's about another thing. The, the, the book of Ruth is meant to speak into this issue of suffering. And we see that as it continues at, in verse 4. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. And then both Malon and Kilian died. So that woman was left without her two sons and her husband. The, the main character of the book of Ruth, I believe, is Ruth, from which the book gets its name. And yet Ruth is the last person that it's mentioned. 
And so even the, the way the introduction to the book of Ruth is structured is, is communicating a sense of dissonance and unevenness and, and brokenness. And this is the way that the story begins. And I would also draw attention to the fact that in these first five verses, there, are, there is a lot of ambiguity. There's a lot of ambiguity in these first five verses. And there's a lot of questions it raises and it doesn't answer. And I love it because it's, it is so true of suffering. So, for example, is Elimelech a good guy? He leaves the land that God had promised to give to him. Uh, presumably, he sells the land uh, because he couldn't, was trying to feed his family. And when he, that runs out, then they leave the land that God had promised to his family, and they go to a pagan land, to the land of Moab. Is Elimelech a good guy? Well, his name, though, means my God is king. That seems like from it, names are really significant in the Hebrew Bible. It seems like he, he believes that the God of the Bible is, is the one who rules and reigns, and yet he, his behavior just, it, it seems ambiguous. Another one is uh, the, even the names of uh, Malon and Kilion. They both kind of mean like sickly or, or destruction. And so some people think that that's indicative of their sin, but it could also just mean that they were fated and destined and doomed to die in a foreign land. We don't, I mean, what is it actually saying there? We, we even see that there's question, what, was it right for these two to marry Moabite women? After all, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 23, it says that you shouldn't marry, uh, that you shouldn't intermarry with people of other religions and that, uh, that, that there's supposed to be something sacred. And yet later on, we'll see, uh, it seems like, it seems like Ruth and Orpah converted to Judaism. There's ambiguity there. And I think that ambiguity is intentional and I think it's important because I think it helps us live into the narrative a little bit. It doesn't provide all the answers. And when you and I are going through suffering, we don't always have a lot of clarity about why we're suffering or what we're suffering, what the cause and effect relationship is. Sometimes our suffering is caused by our foolishness, right? All the young men say yes. Sometimes our suffering is caused by foolishness, right? It's caused by mistakes that we've made and we, we want to own up and repent of, and yet the consequences still remain. And sometimes our suffering has nothing to do with sin. Sometimes suffering is, as it says in John, that it's uh, given so that God would glorify his name. How do we, and we don't always have clarity about the nature of suffering, why we're suffering, what we're suffering for. But here's one thing that is clear about these first five verses. Ruth and Naomi and Orpah need redemption. They need redemption. They need something and someone to make what is wrong right. This is the, the big idea of the way that the story opens. That, that Ruth and Orpah need, and Naomi need, redemption. Uh, redemption in the, the biblical uh, narrative and the story is, is, on the one hand, it's concrete. Uh, it, the, the idea of redemption in the book of Leviticus means that to buy back something that was, that was sold. So if you had to sell yourself into slavery, your, your kinsmen were obligated to buy you back out of slavery. If you had to sell your land because you uh, went through a rough streak, uh, eventually in the year of Jubilee, that that land would be redeemed, that you would get it back or you could buy it back early. And, and there's something about Ruth and Naomi's life. Um, they, certainly they need their land redeemed, but they need their lives redeemed too. 
Whether or not it was because of their sin or somebody's sin that great, this great disaster came on this family, whether or not it was just the way the world is, that God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, they need redemption. They need somebody to make what is wrong right, to make what is useless useful, to, to make what is broken whole. They need a redeemer. And that is what we're left with as we start off this book, heading into the the way that the story um, uh, heightens. It says this in verses 6 through 9. It says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have each of you in the house of your husband. Then she kissed them. Or, I'm sorry, that may the Lord deal kind with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. So Naomi decides, she hears that God has visited the, the, the land of her birth. She's visited her people. She's visited Bethlehem. And so she decides that she is going to return to Bethlehem, and she's going to, uh, to, see, uh, to, to leave the land of Moab and return to the land of her birth. And so she gets with her daughters-in-law, and they, they head out, and they start to leave. And it's like, it's like I, I just imagine, it, it's right when they're gassing up the car to, to get out of town. They're at the gas station. It's kind of this transitional. They've already left home, and there's this question of, and it's almost like they're right about to leave, and Naomi turns to uh, Ruth and Orpah, and, and she blesses them, and she sends them home. She blesses them and she says that may you, the Lord deal kindly with you because you've dealt kindly with my sons and with me. May, may you find rest. May you find somewhere to lay your burdens down in the house of your husband. What is she saying? She's saying, when you go home, remarry and have a full life. They go home and there's this, this blessing for the, the people that, uh, or for these two women that they would find what their hearts are longing for, that they would find hope and purpose in the mess. And of course, in verse 10, they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. And Naomi's a little bit more blunt. She says, but Naomi said, turn back my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my, no, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for the sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So what we see here is that Naomi bids them to go back and they refuse. They want to stay with Naomi. And Naomi's more blunt. She says, look, if you come with me, the chances that you are going to get married and have a full life and have children are very negligible. 
It's probably not going to happen. If you come with me, there's nothing that's going to be there for you. There's nothing waiting ahead of you. Not only that, but if you come with me, I really feel like God has cursed me. So if you come with me, you're going to bring yourself under that curse. And, and Naomi is bidding them just to leave and to not expose themselves to that. And maybe you're here and you're like, that is really, really bad evangelism. Maybe you're, you're thinking, why isn't she more clear? Why, like, why isn't she offering them hope? And like, oh, she's such a Debbie Downer. She's, she is so, uh, why can't she just say, no, trust in the Lord. Why, why, is she, why is she being so bitter? Well, I think we actually see that there is a strategy in verse 15. Because Orpah leaves, but Ruth clings. And Naomi speaks, she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people into her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. We see in the way that Hebrew is, it's kind of like a Hebrew dialogue sometimes can be like a mountaintop. And so there'll be, there'll be in the, it's called a chiasm. And right at the, in the middle of the narrative, at the height of the mountaintop is, is the most emphatic point. And so in this response that Ruth makes, or that Naomi makes to Ruth, she's emphasizing the fact that Orpah has gone back to her gods. And so we're starting to piece together the puzzle here that it seems like maybe Ruth and Orpah were converted when when they married Malon and Kilion. They converted into Judaism. And yet, at least in the case of Orpah, it doesn't seem like it was genuine. Because when given a chance to return back to her gods, she takes the chance. And that's what suffering inevitably does. Suffering presses us and tests us to see if our faith is genuine and real. Suffering is like the refiner's fire, Peter says, that, that burns away what is straw and stubble and hay and chafe so that what is gold can remain. And that's what's happening here with, with Ruth and Orpah. And that's why Naomi is being this way. She's saying, there's only loss ahead if you come. There's nothing to be gained. All you'll have is me. And she's testing, is their faith genuine? I believe that's what is happening here, that, that Ruth is uh, being tested here. Ruth and Orpah's faith is being tested here. And Ruth responds this way. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. What is happening here? Well, Ruth is saying to Naomi that she will go with her and that her God will be her God. She's making a profession of faith. Now, maybe you're reading that, you're like, wait a minute. That does not seem like a clear example of the gospel. It doesn't seem like, like she's clearly binding herself to the God of the Bible. It seems like she's just saying, I just want to be with you, Naomi, so whatever else happens, happens. But no, we can see here that, that this is actually a genuine profession of faith. Let me give you a couple of reasons why. 
if you look ahead to chapter 2, verse 12, this is Boaz speaking of Ruth, okay? So Boaz says this about Ruth. He says, the Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And so clearly, according to the book of Ruth, wants us to read Ruth's profession of faith as genuine. Later on, it's going gonna, it's gonna to build on it and assume that we are believing that it's genuine. We can also see here that just like uh, Naomi's statement was a little mountaintop, and at the peak of the mountaintop was the emphasis that Orpah had gone back to her gods. So here, the peak of what Ruth is saying is, your God will be my God. That at the center of all that she says, the most emphatic point right in the center of the circle is this reality that Ruth is trying to express, which is, I have put my faith in the God of Israel. I'm not going back to Moab. I'm not going back to those pagans. I'm not returning home. I am putting my faith in him, and I'm going to trust him. I'm going to believe in him, and I will go with you, therefore. So at the center, in the middle of this chiasm, we we see here that, that Ruth's profession of faith is more about God than it is about others. And yet, nevertheless, Ruth clings to the God of Israel by clinging to his people. Ruth clings to the God of Israel by clinging to his people. So, so, Part of the reality of true faith is is that you and I were not only created to belong to God, but we were created to be part of God's people. If you and I are going to have true faith in Christ, if you and I are going to be true believers in Christ, it means that we'll also belong to the church. If we would love the shepherd, we must also love the sheep. If we would belong to Christ and have Christ as our head, that means that we're part of the body. That to be included in Christ means that we are included alongside other people, that you and I were were, were created. And that's, as we often see in Scripture, that is often the way that God brings us to himself. Most often it's through people in the church. It's through our parents or our friends or our neighbors who say, hey, there's this pastor up here and he says silly things, but I think you would learn. And you come to church and and the word of the Lord strikes you and and it hits you and it opens up your heart like you did, Lydia. And so it's often through the body of Christ that you and I come to Christ in the first place. And therefore, if we're going to cling to him, if we're going to have him as our Lord, if he if we're going to belong to him, it means we belong to the people of God. To be in Christ means we are in Christ together. But finally, I think the, the main re- one of the main reasons why I think that Ruth's profession of faith is genuine is you'll notice all the serious loss that Ruth takes on to follow the God of Israel. You'll notice all the loss that Ruth endures. Uh, Hebrew uh, tradition actually says that Ruth and Orpah were Moabite princesses. There's actually something to that. Because later in in 2 Samuel, after David is running for his life from King Saul, and he takes his parents somewhere for safety. Where does he take them to safety? Takes them to Moab, and the king of Moab takes them in. It's interesting, right? 
Why would the king of Moab take in these, this weird pe- person from Bethlehem? Right? Well, one of the possible reasons is that they're kin, and that they're related to one another, and there's this kinship obligation. That's one of the possible reasons why God might take in, um, why God might possibly take in the the or uh, the king of Moab might possibly take in the parents of King David. We don't know that. We can't stand firmly. But it does seem, it does seem from the book of Ruth, like Ruth and Orpah are a little bit out of the league of these hicks from Bethlehem. Because the way that their dialogue is oriented, uh, even the way that the book of Ruth is spoken, uh, the this, the Ruth and or, Ruth's Hebrew is very precise and it's very proper. It's very elegant. Um, but Boaz's dialogue is a lot more like he's from out in the sticks. And, and so you even see that the book of Ruth is trying to communicate that there is something high class about these two women from Moab by Ruth and about Ruth and Orpah. And Ruth Whatever that is, whether she's a princess or just from aristocracy or from a well-to-do family, we don't know. But Ruth chooses, here's the important point, to leave that all behind. Ruth chooses to abandon whatever came before to embrace the God of Israel. She left behind her family. She left behind everything that was familiar. She left behind her native land. She left behind her religion, her God's so that Naomi's God would be her God. She endured an intense amount of loss, and you can see the contrast between Ruth and Orpah this way. That Orpah is meant to be a picture and a figure for us, of someone who has surface faith. But Ruth is meant to be for us a picture of someone who has heartfelt, enduring faith one who will endure loss. You see Jesus himself communicate that there's something to the nature of true faith this way. For example, in Luke 18, Jesus instructs the rich young ruler. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Jesus says in Matthew 20 or Matthew 16, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. To, to follow Christ, to embrace Christ means to take up your cross and follow him. It means to leave behind all that was before and embrace what is now. It means, as Paul says in Philippians 3, that we count it all as loss, that we might know Christ. To to be in Christ means, I like to say it this way, that we say to Christ, Christ, I want all of you, so take all of me. 
It means that we turn away and we uh, put by the roadside all those things that we used to obsess about, all those things that we used to follow, and we choose to leave our nets to the side and to follow Christ. And it's for this reason that I think Naomi's faith, or Ruth's faith, is genuine. Because she's willing to leave behind everything else. She knows that she needs redemption. She knows that she needs hope. She knows that she needs someone who can make what is broken whole. And she chooses to find that in the God of Israel himself. She chooses to find her redemption in the God of Israel. Whether or not the suffering of Ruth's family was precipitated by sin or whether or not it was precipitated by living in a broken world, she finds her redemption in Christ. And you and I must do the same thing. It says in Ephesians this, In him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Maybe you're hearing this and you're thinking, I I thought God just wanted me to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Does it really mean that I have to lose everything to follow him? I thought God just wanted me to, to have, a, have a happy life. I thought he just wanted everything to make sense. I thought he wanted, I, I, I didn't realize there'd be so much suffering when it came to following the God of the Bible. We, in, we would call that mentality, the, the idea that God just wants everything to click and that God uh, really needs us to come to him so that he can make us healthy, wealthy, and wise. We would call that the prosperity gospel. And I would tell you, it doesn't believe that God wants to give you too much. It believes that God wants to give you too little. Because here is the prosperity gospel's gospel. That in your suffering, the only thing that can make you whole is money or health. But here's the promise of the gospel, the true gospel, that in your brokenness, in the darkness, when you can't see the light, when everything is falling apart, when you feel so alone, God is enough. That when everything else in your life is letting you down and when those that you looked up to are disappointing you and when you can't seem to catch your breath, here's the promise of the gospel, that Jesus Christ is enough. And only he can redeem our mess. Only he can make what is broken whole. Only he can seek and save the lost. And after a response like that, Naomi just kind of gives up. It says in verse 18, And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Here's the, the mystery of this passage. That God does not give an answer for Ruth's suffering. But he does give her himself. And when we are suffering, that is more than enough for us. And that is all that we need. So they're going to go to Bethlehem, and we will follow them there next week. But let's 
let's make some applications here of this passage for our lives today. Number one, number one, you and I all need redemption. We all need someone to make what is wrong right. We all need someone to provide hope in the midst of hopelessness. We all need someone to bring those things that are broken together. And that can only be had in Christ. That can only be found in Him. And if you're here today and you've never put your faith in Christ, I just encourage you to pray in your seat right now where you are, that prayer. God, I want all of you, so take all of me. Now, if you have ever never made that prayer, you're doing that now, or you want to talk more about that, I'd be happy to talk about that afterwards. That's a question we ask all of our members, so all of our members would be happy to talk with you. Just pull one of them aside after service and say, would you explain this gospel thing to me? We all need redemption. Number two, to follow Christ will cost you everything. (laughs) There is, Jesus does not say, you can crucify this much of your life. It's not a buffet table. It's not the way the gospel works. Jesus says, come and follow me. But here's what I would tell you. He is worth it. He is worth it. To to know him and the power of his resurrection. To, To know the one who said that the kingdom of God is like a diamond in a field. To to know that one is worth it, even if it means that we have nothing else in the world, even if it means everything else fades away, everything else falls apart, everything else burns up, to know him is worth it. To have him and to be had by him, it's worth it. Following Christ will cost you everything, but it is worth it. Suffering is going to come for all of us, whether as a result of our sin or not. Sometimes suffering is the result of our sin, and sometimes it's not. And so we would do well before the day of suffering to prepare ourselves for it by examining our faith and saying, am I more like a Ruth? like an Orpah? Have I really given up everything for the sake of Christ? Have I really counted it all as loss that I might gain him? Or am I just following Christ because it's really convenient? Suffering will come and it will test each of us. (laughs) I I have seen some really, really tough things in my time as pastor And I can tell you there is not an easy way out. And and yet it's in the brokenness. It's in the deep. It's in the pit. It's when everything else falls apart that we find the rock of ages. I don't know what number application this is. We cling to Christ by clinging to his people. We cling to Christ by clinging to his people. When you feel like everything is falling apart on you, when you feel like like there's just 
you feel so alone and you don't know how there can be hope ahead. You don't know how there can be light around the corner. One of the means of grace that God puts in our life is other believers and other Christians who can encourage you and sustain you and lovingly rebuke you, who can big, big brother you, as I like to call it. One of the means of grace that God puts in our life is Christian community. And it is better to belong before that day arrives than after. It is better to belong to the, to the community of faith before suffering comes than after. And finally, here's this. When that day comes, when everything else falls apart, decide today that he will be enough for you. That this God will be your God. And this people will be your people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you enter into the mess. And we thank you that even though we don't always get an answer to our question, why this, why now, why may you give us yourself? And that is more than enough for us. Pray these things in the name of your Son and by your Spirit. Amen.